Good morning. All right. We're in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 6. If you're new or visiting, we study through books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And then we'll have some things to say about them. Time is running out for you to find Luke chapter 6. Just thought I'd give you a 30-second warning there. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would find us this morning filled with your Spirit, filled with your Spirit and ready to receive your Word that we would see deeply into your character this morning to see the compassion and mercy and grace that you bestowed upon us, Lord, as you were here on earth and as you are now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that we would never become like the scribes and Pharisees, Lord, in our understanding of who you are and what you want to accomplish. And having said that, Lord, we all have those leanings. We all have certain areas and aspects of our life, Lord, where we are a little bit like that. I pray that you would reveal those today, Lord, so that we would never misrepresent you and your love to one another and to others, Lord, who don't know you. Bless our time in your word, Lord. May it be rich and refreshing to our inner man. May it satisfy our innermost desires. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You really should celebrate the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God to mankind at the beginning of creation, and it has never been revoked. Are we a day late as we gather to worship on Sunday? Did we blow it yesterday by going to work or by working around the house? Not at all. The Sabbath is much bigger and much better than a set of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, prohibitions and penalties about what happens from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. You can celebrate the Sabbath any day. In fact, you should celebrate the Sabbath every day. In our text, 
The Sabbath meant Saturday, the one day in seven in which you were to do no work. The Pharisees and their scribes had created at least 39 categories to define what is meant by work on the Sabbath. Each category had many subdivisions, making for thousands of meticulous rules. The Pharisees and their scribes were all about what we might call precepts. A precept is a very specific rule prescribing or prohibiting certain actions under certain circumstances. Jesus established that the Sabbath was not about precepts and that it was never about precepts. It was, it was and it is about the person who gave it and about the principles that govern it. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you celebrate the Sabbath by following the person who gave it. And number two, you celebrate the Sabbath by finding the principles that govern it. Let's take a look first in verses 1 through 5. You celebrate the Sabbath by following the person who gave it. The Sabbath remains a complex, confusing, and even condemning subject. And before we actually get into our text, I feel like I need to spend a few minutes on this. Seventh-day groups like the Adventists are adamant about keeping the Sabbath. Some Christian denominations believe that Sunday is the new Saturday and that we should therefore keep Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. The rest of us have a sense that all of this is not quite right, but sometimes we do secretly wonder if we are breaking the fourth commandment and somehow dishonoring God. Long before the fourth commandment was given in Exodus, God established the Sabbath. Listen to the original day seven. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. What did God really intend by resting on the seventh day? Commenting on the original day seven, the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews tells you what it was originally meant to show. This is from Hebrews chapter four, verse 10. Let me just read it to you. For he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. God's rest is something God wants you to enter and experience for yourself. It is something that has been available to mankind from the time the creation was finished. What is it? Is it one day off every seven? No, it's much more than that. The rest of God is meant to be a picture of the spiritual salvation God offers to mankind. At the end of the first week of creation, God entered into a rest when He ceased from His work. You are invited to enter God's rest by ceasing from your own works. How do you cease from works? You're told in that same chapter of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 3, we who have believed do enter into that rest. If you believe God for salvation, you've entered into His spiritual rest for your soul. You've ceased from works of righteousness that you thought could save you, and you have instead received Christ's work his finished work on the cross. 
Furthermore, you can remain at rest by daily trusting in God to enable and empower you as you walk through this world. Day seven in Genesis was a physical, tangible example of the invisible spiritual experience of knowing and trusting God. Now, that's why, and this is interesting, in Genesis, no commandments or rules were given. No precepts were laid down. God did not tell Adam and Eve to keep the seventh day or to cease from their work. He gave it to them as a picture of saving and sustaining faith. Believe God and you enter and can experience the spiritual rest of His salvation every day of your life. That is the meaning of the Sabbath in Genesis. Search through the Old Testament, and you will find zero people observing the seventh day as a special day on which no work was done. That was surprising to me to realize that. No one observed the Sabbath or kept the Sabbath until you get to the nation of Israel. When you get to Israel, God's new people God gives them and them alone the covenant and commandment to keep the Sabbath as a day in seven on which they cease from work. In Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17, no less than three times, the Lord said that the particular observance of the Sabbath day by ceasing from work on it was between Him and Israel throughout all their generations. When God gave Israel the Sabbath covenant and commandment, it was to help them look back at Genesis and realize that salvation was by grace through faith and never by works. It was to give them a physical example of the spiritual rest of salvation. The Sabbath is bigger than trying to take one day off a week to worship God. It is realizing that salvation is by grace through faith. It is resting in God every day and every moment of every day. You are still going to get hammered by people who say either that you must worship on Saturday or more frequently that Sunday has become the new Saturday. First of all, you are not required to worship on Saturday. That is just not true. It is permissible to regard any day as special. It is wrong to make it a moral duty to esteem one day over another. Now, you realize that what we have in the Bible is what we call a progressive revelation. You have to look at the whole revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation to understand what is meant by these things. Seventh-day groups always go back to Exodus immediately, to the fourth commandment. They more or less ignore that nothing happened until the fourth commandment, and they ignore everything that you read in the New Testament about these things. Here's what the apostles thought about the Sabbath. Paul the Apostle said, this is from Romans, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. He that regards a day, he regards it unto the Lord. He that doesn't regard a day, to the Lord he doesn't regard it. Let us not therefore judge one another any more. In other words, plainly spoken, Paul says every day is the same as the next. You want to worship Saturday, fine. You want to worship Wednesday, that's great. The thing that you can't do is say that one day is any different than the next. It's up to you. And then in Colossians, Paul says very plainly, let no man therefore judge you in meat, drink, or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is 
is of Christ. Secondly, Sunday is not the new Saturday. Christians are to be faithful to local church meetings whenever they are held, and any day is appropriate for a spiritual observance. Why do we meet on Sundays? From the earliest times, Christians usually conducted their main worship services on Sunday. The early believers chose the day of Christ's resurrection to emphasize that they were not under the old covenant, which the Sabbath symbolized, but they were under the new covenant, which the resurrection instituted. Thus, the believers, for example, at Troas met on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20. And Paul instructed the Corinthians to collect offerings on the first day of the week during their worship, 1 Corinthians 16. John the, ba- or John the Apostle was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, when Jesus appeared to him in a vision in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus himself established the precedent of meeting on the first day by meeting with his disciples on uh, the f- uh, evening of his resurrection two weeks in a row. And the Holy Spirit fell on the assembled disciples on Pentecost Sunday. Now, it's interesting, Sunday was a normal work day in the pagan Roman Empire. So Christians usually met on that day in the early morning or in the evening. So when you talk about Sunday being the Christian Sabbath, the, new, the first century Christian would not know what you're talking about because they met on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, but they had to do it in between their work day because they had to go to work. After Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal, he began supporting it. He proclaimed Sunday as a holy day. He did not originate Sunday worship, but merely legalized and facilitated the existing practice. There is no teaching anywhere in your New Testament that makes Sunday the new Christian Sabbath day. It's not a matter of keeping or observing one day out of seven. You and I are to celebrate the Sabbath by resting in God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, because of the thousands of man-made restrictions regarding it, the Sabbath was more tiresome than the six days devoted to your occupation. You would rather go to work than try to keep the Sabbath. It was harder to rest than to earn a living. With regards to the incident in Luke chapter 6, here's the man-made rule for the Sabbath. This is not from Scripture. This is what the rabbis taught. If a person rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is harvesting. If he rubs the heads of the wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side of the wheat, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding, and if he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing. If you think this was ridiculous, you're right, but so is any approach to the Sabbath that is based on precepts. Instead, you celebrate the Sabbath by following a person. And so let's see how it unfolds in our verses. In verse 1, now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The Pharisees were following Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. There are a lot of people who seem outwardly spiritual because they keep certain precepts, but they don't know Jesus. You have to remember, and it's it's a good reminder for us, the Pharisees were considered the most spiritual people of their day. We look back at them. We see Jesus' criticism of them. 
We understand that they were blowing it. But the Jew in those days looked up to the Pharisee as the, the example, the person you wanted to be like who was meticulously keeping God's law. Even Jesus said to the crowds, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees if you want to get into heaven, meaning their outward righteousness wasn't even enough, but it was, you know, uh, meticulous. And so we have to look at it this way. They were following Jesus, but not His followers. And people who get into all of these legalistic rules and regulations and the way they live is a certain way and they have a certain manner of dress and a certain manner of appearance and, and, and all these various things, these outward rules and, and all the, in terms of their dress and their diet and the days that they keep, they, they do seem spiritual, don't they? There's something about that that appeals to the carnal nature of man. You think, man, that's what I need to do to be spiritual. I need to dress all in black. Did you ever think about that? We did this on a Wednesday night. We were talking about the Jewish high priest. That guy, he was GQ. Man, that guy knew how to dress. Have you ever really read the description of how the Jewish high priest dressed? Man, he had jewels and gems all over him. He was glistening in the sunlight, had this big turban on. He was dressed in blue and white, all these fantastic garments. No one was dressed as beautifully as the high priest. Now, we flash forward to our own culture and times. Priests are just drab-looking guys. They dress them. You can recognize them all the time. They're all dressed in black like somebody just died. A little bit of white right here, which I don't quite understand. All of our religion, all, you know, we've got this idea that to be religious, you have to dress like you're in mourning. And, 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 and so, you know, that's the, that's the thing that was happening here. The Pharisees appear spiritual, but they're really not. Now, these guys were following Jesus to find ways to accuse him. They may have, now listen to this, they may have been counting Jesus' steps. I say that because you could only travel a certain distance on the Sabbath. I think it's 3,000 steps from your house. A little abacus or something, you know, I guess. I don't know. Now, what's interesting, though, and this is a good example, you could take certain objects, say, late Friday afternoon before sundown, you could take a certain object from your house and you could put it 3,000 steps away from your house and it then became an extension of your house. And so now you could go 3,000 steps from that extension. This is why precepts can never work because as soon as you establish it, Somebody says, how far can I travel? How much does it work to leave my house? Uh, uh, 3,000 steps. What constitutes my house? Is it my property line or where my property from my house is? Uh, And then, you know, so pretty soon, I guess, if you wanted to, you could leave stuff all over Rome, you know, and and (laughs) travel as far as you wanted to. Now, we read here on the second Sabbath after the first. This might mean that a special day followed right after Saturday and was observed as a Sabbath. It's interesting to note there were other Sabbath days, special days, considered Sabbaths that were not Saturday. And not just days, there were Sabbath years. Every seventh year was to be observed as a special Sabbath year. 
And every 50th year, which would be the year following seven times seven years, was called the year of Jubilee. Again, it was a special Sabbath year. For example, in the the normal Sabbath year, you remember the Jews were supposed to let their fields lie fallow and not work their fields to let the land rest. One of the uh, things about the year of Jubilee was that slaves were freed and debts were released. You just wrote off everybody's debt. Now, I I don't say this to be disrespectful in any way, but it might put things into perspective. The local hospital here, which has Adventist roots, in their 50th year of operation, are they going to release everybody's medical debt and just say, hey, it's the year of Jubilee. God bless you. Now, I'm not saying they're not generous or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not even criticizing them. But people who keep the Sabbath, they don't really keep the Sabbath. They keep some idea of the Sabbath that they've made up for themselves. They're not keeping a Sabbath year. They're not keeping other days as a Sabbath. They're not keeping the year of Jubilee. And so no one is really keeping the Sabbath by worshiping on Saturday. It was lawful to glean from the edges of the fields. The thing that the Pharisees said was not lawful was their own interpretation of the Sabbath. What the disciples were doing constituted the work, they said, of harvesting, threshing, sifting, grinding, and winnowing. Now, you and I don't see this. We just see a bunch of guys grabbing ears of, uh, you know, grain, rubbing them in their hands and popping them in their mouth as a quick snack, high-energy, low-carb snack. But the Pharisees were on top of this with their notepads saying, oh, man, these guys are harvesting, winnowing. Look at that. Jesus answered them in verse 3, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? Now, this Old Testament story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men were fleeing from wicked King Saul. The showbread were 12 loaves of holy consecrated bread that were in the holy place of the Jewish tabernacle. God himself in Scripture had said only the priests were allowed to eat that bread. David quite literally broke God's law by eating that bread. Even though he broke God's law, he was held in high esteem by the Jews. After all, he was David. He was the man after God's own heart. They had no criticisms of David eating that bread and breaking God's law. Jesus and his disciples were not breaking God's law, only violating the man-made rules. If the Pharisees could excuse David for actually breaking God's law, how could they find fault with Jesus and his disciples for only breaking their arbitrary laws? You know... This, this is why after a while they just wanted to kill Jesus because they could never out-argue him. He would ask these simple questions based on the Bible and just completely humiliate and frustrate these guys. And so Jesus is not breaking the law. He's indicating that if he wanted to, he could because he's greater than David. But he's catching them in their own logic. By his question too, Jesus underlined an important truth. There are occasions in which you might be allowed to break the letter of God's law in order to keep its spirit. God's law regarding the showbread 
was never meant to allow anyone to starve to death. And so if the decision is between this is holy bread that no one can eat but the priest and I'm going to starve to death, well, if you're following Jesus, you eat the bread. If you're following the Pharisees, you start making plans for a funeral because they wanted to keep the law. And then he said to them in verse 5, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. If you are the Lord of the Sabbath, then you are the one who gave mankind the Sabbath in the beginning. Jesus was claiming to be there back in Exodus at the giving of the Ten Commandments and back further still in Genesis when he rested from the work of creation. Not only that, there's a sense in which Jesus was claiming to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, you remember, is the picture God gave to mankind of resting in Him for salvation. When He is your Lord, He is the Lord of the Sabbath rest God promised you. Your salvation, your spiritual rest is found in a daily personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't keep the Sabbath by any set of precepts that tell you what to do or not to do on Saturday or on Sunday or on any other day. The Sabbath is following the person who gave it to you. You can and should celebrate the Sabbath every day by resting in the person of Jesus as your Lord. Okay, I understand that much, but how do I live as a person resting in Jesus every day? Well, in verses 6 through 11, you find that you celebrate the Sabbath by finding the principles that govern it. The healing in verses 6 through 11 fill out our perspective on the Sabbath and tell us how we celebrate it every day. Verse 6, now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Religion always leads to this kind of contradiction. Religion looks for ways to condemn people. Jesus looks for ways to express God's compassion and to save people. And so this is perfectly consistent with the Pharisees. Healing was prohibited on the Sabbath. In fact, you could preserve life on the Sabbath. If somebody was dying, you could prevent them from dying, but you couldn't do anything to help them get any better. So if you cut yourself on the Sabbath and you were bleeding to death, somebody could prevent you from bleeding to death. They could hold their hand on your wound, I suppose, but they couldn't sew you up until sundown on Saturday. Otherwise, it would be considered work. And so this is perfectly consistent with a religious attitude that keeping rules and regulations is more important than having a relationship with God. There's also speculation among scholars that the Pharisees planted this guy to tempt Jesus to heal. Could you see the Pharisees? They blow into town and say, hey, we need to find a guy with a withered hand. You got any withered hands here? We need to find some kind of, you know, crazy healing thing that Jesus can be kind. So, hey, we'll pay you, you know, five simoles to, to go to synagogue today and, and just hang out there with your withered hand. We want to see what Jesus is going to do. Because on the one hand, if he just ignores you, then we can say that he doesn't have compassion and the love of God. But if he heals you, man, we've got him dead to rights. What's he doing healing on the Sabbath? And, you know, what? And see, this is a good one, too, because if Jesus wants to heal him, why not just wait until sundown? And he's got his little sundial going, you know. Okay, now I can heal him. You remember like the Flintstones. Didn't they have sundial watches? 
I think they were, that was cool. You know, once the Flintstones was like the epitome of television, you know, it was, it was the peak, it was the high point, and then everything has been downhill from there. But anyway, so, you know, it would be easy for Jesus to just wait until the Sabbath was over. Then you don't have any hassle with the Pharisees and you heal the guy anyway. But it would be wrong for Jesus to do that for the reasons that he's going to give us in a minute. I don't know if the Pharisees actually planted this guy that's going beyond what this text says. I will say that it's wrong to use God's people even when you think it's to a good goal. See, these Pharisees, they, they thought it was good to discredit Jesus because he was trouble for their religious system. And, and whatever they were doing with this guy, they thought it was a good thing. And we won't need to take that to heart as Christians and as leaders and as a church. You never want to use God's people to achieve any ends. God's people are the end. It's ministering to them. It's loving them. They are the end that Jesus has in mind, not some external goal. We may achieve some external goals. We may get some places. That's fine. But it's who we are and how we get there that's more important. Now, in verse 8, he knew their thoughts said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? There's so many times in the Gospels when these guys have nothing to say because there's nothing they can say. If they answer, I mean, this is like a rhetorical question, but if they answer it like you should answer it, it tears down their entire system, and so finally they just stand there saying nothing. And, and really, that's, that's a beautiful picture of what religion can do for you, nothing. It can't help you at all. And when he had looked around at all of them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. How could this man comply? Have you ever thought about that? Didn't Jesus ask him to do the very thing that he was not able to do? It becomes a stunning and dramatic illustration of something we like to say all the time. God's commands are his enablings. When God commands you to do something or tells you you can do something, it carries with it its own power and enabling. Anything God tells you to do, you can do. Now, think about this man with the withered hand. He could have said, how do I do that? Jesus said, stretch out your hand. Lord, have you know this hand, the good hand? No, no, the other hand. I can't do that. It's withered. What steps should I take to prepare for stretching forth my hand? What prayers should I pray? What what counseling do I need? What, What help do I need? There's a million different directions that this guy could have went in. Jesus just said, hey, I want you to stretch out your hand, and he just did it. And then when he was done doing it, Jesus didn't say, hey, let me take a look at that. Okay, yeah, that's going to get better over time. Now you need some therapy. Go down the street here and, uh, you know, to uh, the therapy house, and, and they'll work with you. And over in about six months, you'll feel a lot stronger and better. You'll be able to use that hand as I intended. No, he didn't do that either. Jesus said, hey, why don't you stretch forth your hand? And the next thing you know, this guy had stretched forth his hand, and it was just as, well, it was better than new. It was perfect. Okay, what does that mean to us? As you go through your Christian life, 
you're going to be confronted with many impossible tasks. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Impossible task. I mean that. You cannot love your wife the way Jesus Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, not withholding anything. Don't fool yourself. It's an impossible task. You know what I'm going to say next. (laughs) If that's impossible, it is doubly impossible (laughs) for a wife to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. My husband, the Lord? Oh, man, I can't even see that far. And this is the crux of most marriage counseling is you sit and and basically, I don't know, you could say it a million different ways from all different angles, book after book, Christian bookstores full of books, and it all comes down to what Jesus already said. Husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And you and I are looking at some withered, shriveled hand saying, give me the, help me out here. How do you do that? What are the steps? Are there 10 steps, 12 steps, 5 chapters? What do I do to get my hand out there and meet the other person halfway? You know, and that kind of a thing. (laughs) This is revolutionary because what it tells you... No, I'm serious. You're laughing, but you're wrong. Uh, (laughs) Because this this is the crux of the matter. We don't believe God. We don't think we can do it. We don't know how to do it. This guy did not know how to stretch forth his hand. He had not done it. It it couldn't be done. It was impossible. And God is always asking you to do something impossible. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Return blessing for cursing. The whole list of do's in the Christian life are impossible. And we go through our whole life thinking we can figure out how to do them. And going to programs and seminars and all of this stuff. And and Jesus says, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just believe me and say, at least look up from the Scripture and say, okay, I believe that can be done because, God, you told me it could be done. And then do it. Are you going to fail? Well, sure, because you're not Jesus. You're not perfect. You still have a flesh to contend with and, and the other person and all of these other factors. But you never get to the point where you think this can't be done. People are always concluding that what God tells them to do can't be done in our modern culture, that we are so advanced now that the simple things in the Scripture are gone, and we have to have modern methods of doing them, that if Jesus were here, He'd bring in the medications and all of these other things that we need to really accomplish this, and it's just not true. And so this is profound. This is, a, this is maybe the most profound picture of God's commands being His enablings. Put it another way, it's also a picture of what it means to rest in Jesus. This man put forth no real effort but was empowered to do the impossible. I mentioned physical therapy before. Some of you have been through serious physical therapies because of different injuries, and, uh, you, know, and you know that it can really be difficult. You know, you're just you know, stressing and, and every week you're making just a little progress and you never think you're going to be able to use your hand or your knee or your shoulder again. And, and sometimes we look at the Christian life like that too, that, wow, man, how am I ever going to make any progress? And Jesus said, there, you just, just do it and then we'll walk together. Will you fail? Well, sure. And then what happens? You start over again from the point of failure, having made a little bit of progress. 
and then you keep going forward with the Lord. It's a rest. There's no effort to really obeying the Lord because he does it in you and through you. And so in verse 11, they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. I guess rage wasn't on the list of bad works, you know, in terms of things that you have to worry about. Sabbath-keeping by precept always results in this kind of religious uh, bigotry or burden, however you'd want to put that. These guys, remember, these are the spiritual head honchos, and they see this man healed on the Sabbath, and they're just enraged. Why couldn't he wait till sundown? We've got to do something about this. This is insane. And a lot of times churches fall into these kinds of things. We have to be careful. Their precepts, as I said, limited the amount of medical help you could offer. Jesus did something in his question. He established that principles, principles are more important than precepts. Now, we said earlier a precept was a very specific rule prescribing or prohibiting certain actions under certain circumstances. A principle is a general guideline intended to recommend different actions under a variety of circumstances. You are doomed if you want to live by a strict set of precepts. You cannot have a rule or regulation for every possible circumstance. Every time you establish a rule, there's a new wrinkle to consider. All you do is add burden upon burden. Anybody that's had children understands that precepts just don't work. You can tell your kids, for example, no between-meal snacks. Next thing you know, they're in the living room eating a bag of Doritos. What are you doing? I thought you meant in the kitchen. <laughs> because that's where you told me I couldn't have snacks in the kitchen. So then now you've got a subsection, no between-meal snacks anywhere in the house. Well, you know, that's not good enough, is it? Because then they're outside in the garage. And now you get into this is the, well, how far is the extension of the house like the Jews did? And so you can keep adding these rules, and every rule that you make, your child will find a new exception to it. And they're pretty creative about doing it, just like you and I are when it comes to the IRS <laughs> or our employer. Well, did you really say that? And, and you know, we, we go around these things, and, and that's why we have all of these things. You need to establish principles and teach your children, and we need to be taught to live by principle, and then you don't really ever need any rules. If your principle regarding the Sabbath is to do good and save life, then you don't need any rules or regulations whatsoever. If you understand that it's a day, that it's not a day, but it's a life of rest in God trusting in God for salvation and for daily strength, and that you're supposed to do good and save life, that covers it. And then everything that happens, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do good and save life. So what would the good thing be? How could you help somebody or save them or further them in their own spiritual progress, that kind of a thing? It's a much better way to live. The Sabbath is not a matter of setting aside one day out of seven to rest and worship God. It is not a matter of deciding whether that day is still Saturday or if it's Sunday. And it's not a matter of defining what constitutes work and what constitutes worship. The true Sabbath is the spiritual rest 
Jesus promised when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Sabbath is celebrating salvation every day by resting in the person of Jesus and living moment by moment according to the principles you discover in His Word. Speaking of His person and these principles, always remember that any principles you think you discover in the Bible must harmonize with what you know to be true about Jesus Christ. Principles can be just as burdensome as precepts. You can establish a principle that is not biblical and think that you're really doing something. Everything is subordinate to who Jesus is, how He acts, what He would do, what's revealed about Him in the Scripture. Every principle you discover will reflect the love and joy and hope and peace and compassion that speak of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we're not under a system of rules and regulations. We're thankful to learn, Lord, that even though you gave rules and regulations and still do in the Scripture, that they are to remind us of the bigger principles, Lord, of how to live, and that beyond that, really, we just need to draw close to you and know you as our personal Lord and Savior. And then empowered by and indwelt by your Spirit, Lord, we'll know to do good and to save life. And I pray that each of us would meditate on these things. Lord, this Sabbath controversy, it's not going to go away in the Gospels, and it hasn't gone away for 2,000 years. Cults and Christians, Lord, still argue about day seven, about what it meant and what it didn't mean, and about whether Sunday is the new Saturday and those things. And I pray, Lord, that we, with compassion and love, would stand in our freedom in Christ and proclaim, Lord, by our living and by our words that every day is our Sabbath of rest, that we have entered into the Sabbath rest of salvation and of being sustained by the power of Your Spirit, and that it's not a day in seven, it's seven days out of seven. And, Lord, that we set aside a day to worship You because, Lord, You're honored in that. You rose from the dead. We commemorate that. We're here every Sunday just to tell the world that there was a resurrection from the dead, that there's a person who died and lives and lives forever, and it's Jesus Christ, and through Him, they can live as well. And so, Lord, fill our hearts with wonder and awe. Set us free from chains of bondage, Lord, and and hold us by Your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Let's stand together. As we sing this last song and then afterwards, some of our deacons will be down here in front, uh, in the front of the stage, love to pray with you, share with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not really a Christian, never given your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior. You need to enter into that rest of salvation for the first time. Come on down and they'll be happy to share with you. May God bless and keep you this week in Jesus' name.